Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Ryan, the co-founder and CTO at Credit Karma, and we discuss the toughest lessons learned after going through a hyper-growth phase, their mission to make financial progress possible for everybody, and what to keep an eye out for as you scale values within your organization. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Super pumped up to be hanging out and talking with you today. And you're one of the founders of it, right? Yeah, I've been here for 13 years. Crazy wow. enough. 13 and I guess 13 and a half now. What was life like leading up to Credit Karma? Like before Credit Karma? So before Credit Karma, so I, I graduated school in 2004 with a computer science degree. And I went to work for this really small company called Venetica. It was like 60 person B2B. They made software that connected banks. It was, you know, the kind of software where you'd have one customer at a bank that actually used your, your product, but they paid you a, a ton of money. And I was really sold on the small company lifestyle, you know, make a big impact and that kind of thing. And I was there for, I don't know, three weeks maybe. And they announced we were being acquired by IBM. So I joined 330,000 person IBM. I was in software there for a few years and I decided that, you know, it just really wasn't for me, the, the giant company lifestyle kind of feeling like I'm a very small part of this thing and that, and the type of software, you know, not many, not many people actually use it sort of obscure, can't really explain what it does to anybody. And so, yeah, I, I decided I, I needed to find something else. Now, is that, did you do programming before college and before those first projects? Like when did you start writing code? I, I, yeah, I was a hobbyist as a, I picked it up as a kid. I had, uh, the Tandy 100, if you, if you remember that computer, mm-hmm. it, it yeah. was everything, everything displaced. I had a neighbor who was a little bit older and he learned uh, GW basic and he sh- showed up and showed me how to draw a circle in GW basic. And I was blown away that you could make the computer do something. You know, it's just like a, that was sort of a revelation, you know, because you sort of imagine these things being developed by all these smart people in a laboratory somewhere with special equipment. And I was like, it's really that, is it really that easy? You could just type some stuff in and make the computer do things. And so then, uh, you know, all through junior high and high school, I, I spent a ton of time trying to figure out what makes the computer work. And I got, that was right around the the dawn of like the modern internet, you know, and when the, the web started to become a thing. Because when I began, it was Gopher, you know, Gopher and Usenet. But when uh, the web came around, right around that time and Java came out, that's when I started to get into networking. And, you know, now it's now it's not just making the computer do something. It's you can get people to connect. And that notion was so cool to me that, you know, you could you could create programs to talk to other programs and actual people would use them. And so that's what really got me into it. What type of programs were you building that were connecting and talking to others? So we did, I did a lot of gaming stuff, you know, cause I played a lot of games back then. And then I was really into computer security. So, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, write exploits and figure out how the, you know, how to break stuff. I just thought that was a neat, you know, a neat, a neat path, a really weird and obscure aspect of programming, I guess, back then, but uh, it was fun. 
No, I totally get it. I had a downstairs computer that my sisters would use and I was upstairs in my room and I spent a whole summer trying to figure out how to like hack that computer or gain access to it. And uh, it was just so much fun. It was almost addictive. And then luckily when paid projects came up, they were business logic type softwares for you know organizations. So that's where I ended up making money and I didn't get too lost in the security stuff for too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it can be, it's a pretty deep rabbit hole, you know, it can go for forever. I, I, I liked it a lot also because you would have to learn a lot about how, you know, your your operating system worked or how your, how this networking protocol worked to actually, you know, be effective. And that was sort of the fun of it. I think it was the journey to the, you know, the end goal, whatever the end goal was. So at what point were you like, I need to found Credit Karma? <laughs> it was never quite like that. It was, it was much more like, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do. I had this, the, my last job at IBM, I, I had this manager who I, I was hunting teams and he, and he came to me and said, you know, if you just join my team, you can just do whatever you want. You know, I won't give you any goals. There's no projects, you know, just be on this team and come up with stuff to do. And that could be your job. And I thought that that was going to be the best job. You know, my like 24 year old self thought that this was like the perfect job. And I just, I hated it. I took that job and I hated it so much. It was, it was boring to not have anybody really invested in what you're doing or, you know, to be this island unto yourself. And so I thought, Hey, okay. You know, I kind of want the opposite of this. I want something that's really high pressure, really small, you know, the people that I'm working with really care about what I'm doing. And so I, I was talking to this guy, Greg Lull, who's our now chief marketing officer at Credit Karma. And he was at a search engine marketing firm. It was super small. And it was uh, our CEO uh, today, Ken Lin and founder. He was actually CEO of that search engine marketing firm. And Greg said, hey, I think you should check this out. This is a fun business. We need a technology leader. And I talked to him and uh, he referred me to Ken and Ken said, no, this business is never going to scale. I have a much better idea. <laughs> so he pitched me on, on Credit Karma and it sounded like exactly like I want, you know, super high impact, lots of people, crazy pressure, not much money. <laughs> and, you know, I just thought that it would be the exact opposite of what I was doing. I get what you mean though. I've never had somebody offer me a job exactly like that, right? Where you come in and do whatever you want. But if you don't have people that need you, if you don't feel like you're valuable and useful to others, I mean, at least for me personally, that's a very strong like driver for me. Like I need to feel that I'm very useful to others and that I'm achieving my potential as far as helping other people. And I was surprised to discover that honestly, because I thought that I'd be the kind of person who wouldn't mind just kind of toiling away and research and operating to my own ends and, you know, being a one man show, but it turned out to really not be true. I, I started to realize maybe it was the connecting people and the, you know, the impact that I had in, you know, all those experimentations in high school that I really enjoyed and not just the tinkering away. Yeah. It's like when people ask, after you have so much success, you know, you founding a very large company, it's like, why don't, why don't you quit? Or like, why don't you just go do something else? And it's like, well, cause you love it and it's fun. 
Yeah, I, I get asked that a lot. What what would you do or what will we do when it's all over? And it's, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't really set out to do this. Uh, you know, I was looking for a, a feeling and, a, and an impact. And, you know, I just kept hunting until I found it. Well, that's good because you're learning to like navigate, right? And it's clearly working for you. And so, you know, as Credit Karma goes on, I'm sure you'll just naturally gravitate towards other interesting problems. I'm sure you're doing it inside of credit karma every single day. And I guess the only difference would be, you know, the logo on the background <laughs> or your desk. I would, I would say building, but like no one's going into buildings anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I told, uh, I told a story once at an, at an all hands about my grandfather who had started his own business years and years ago and it was successful. And he, he would go into the office every day until he was, I think his last day was when he was 88, you know, when he finally stopped going in, but he kept that office long after he'd, you know, he transitioned the business to his, his sons. And I actually, as a kid, I asked my parents, like, what, you know, why he could retire. He's lots of money. He could do whatever he wants. And the answer is simple. It's just like, this is what he wants to do. You know, this is the thing that he loves. He didn't, you know, he didn't just do it to, to make money and be successful. He did it because he enjoys it and he still enjoys it. And so why would he stop? And I actually think it's one of the things that kept him, he up until his nineties was very sharp. And I actually think it was because he never, you know, he never disconnected. He can't, he, he stayed connected to what, you know, what he enjoyed his whole life. That's important. That's what you find with, with aging is the people who are still doing what they love and still have a reason to get up. They tend to live a lot longer than the person who retires and has nothing to do and they just pass away a lot faster. Yeah, I think we all need something. You know, you can't we're not we're not built to just hang out. So, so what's uh what's credit karma's like long term vision? Well the long term vision, you know, if you kind of, if you think about just what finance is like right now, it's very it's very fragmented, it's very manual, and it's not very consumer oriented. You know, so what, what I think finance could be like is much more oriented around what are you trying to accomplish? What are your goals? What's your, what are you long-term trying to achieve and short-term trying to achieve? And a lot of them, the decisions that you need to make along the way boil down to basic math and kind of a flow chart of, you know, options that you just need a lot of information to navigate and current products require you to know all of that. You know, a lot of, existing financial products are like, hey, read these 10 articles and then look at our menu of loan options and, and figure that out. The future of Credit Karma, I believe, is one where you we know you want to buy a house and we can actually automate much of that process for you from the saving to the down up for the down payment to the to the application and approval and then managing your equity. You know, a lot of that stuff we could just do. And rather than making you read it all beforehand, you know, we could actually just be informing you along the way, like an advisor would, you know, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And it's possible if you can interconnect all of these different backend services um, that have never really been, you know, no one's really attempted ever even to, to connect them in the way that, that we have. So you guys are going to get into like the, the home mortgage type business? Or are you already there? So we actually are already in, yeah, we're in home and mortgage and we're building those product lines out. We've recently brought out our first uh, 
products in the asset space, so savings and checking accounts. And you know, combining that with our ability to pre-approve you for so many products, you know, now we can start to do things like, hey, we, we're just looking at what your situation is and what your profile is, and we think you should move money over here, and we can actually just do it for you. So you could just click confirm. And so you, we can move you to a much more automated financial position to where, you know, wealthy people have a financial advisor or manager that does this stuff for them. You know, why can't everybody have that? Because a lot of it boils down to what a machine learning system can figure out for you as long as it knows what you're trying to do. Yeah, I listen to Ray Dalio a lot and he talks a lot about how the algorithms are just things that humans are already doing and then they translate it into code and then that's how they're able to scale their services at you know one of the largest hedge funds in the world a lot of things are like that because we've all just figured out the the algorithm and we're running it in our heads uh, but a little slower than what a computer could do right and our memory is constantly like degrading one bit per neuron per second, right? And that's like the mathematical formula for memory degradation. I've actually never heard that. That's interesting. And it's called the forgetting curve. So they, the basis of it is like the little, uh, I saw a TED talk on it and they'll show you like different types of media, how you consume it. And like if you watch somebody for, give a one hour speech in two weeks, how much you remember, or like in one hour, how much you remember a week, two weeks, a month. And so that's how I actually got the idea of how to design the talks. I did a bunch of talks last year before COVID. And it's basically, I designed the entire talk around the one to two things they will remember in three months after hearing me speak. And then I just hammer that point in different ways from every different angle. Uh, so I'm not giving them a, you know, like a numerous amount of examples and things uh, that are all connected to different points. I'm just constantly reinforcing these two points I want them to walk away with. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is uh, retention and storage versus recall, and you know what's actually in there. Is it the is it the data that's degrading, or our ability to find the data? That's Computers true. have neither problem. But I know, <laughs> I know. I mean, on a long term time scale, they. I mean, don't don't drive like fail after 10, 10 15 years. So I mean, they oh, kind of sure. have it yeah. a little bit. Yeah, the actual physical media can can degrade, but we figured out how to make that redundant. <laughs> because you're in the financial world now and before you you weren't as much um in fact the job before you said you had like unlimited creativity to do whatever you wanted now you're into the financial space and there's regulation i know you've been in here for like over 10 years but how do you feel as a it's like my background software engineering so how, how do you feel with all the regulation did that like hinder you as as a programmer did it bother you was it warmly accepted <laughs> warmly accepted is kind of a funny few regulated people would say warmly accepted <laughs> in any industry probably <laughs> but uh, there are you know there are good aspects to the regulation I mean preventing discrimination for example I think is a really important thing that regulation does and uh, in this space in particular there can be some really downside really big downsides to an unregulated industry so you know regulation is definitely definitely necessary but it does make your job harder in a lot of cases, because it's it's imperfect, you know, by its very nature. So often you're trying to do something that's completely within the spirit of the law, but it's technically not, you know, not aligned with the law. And so you're figuring out, okay, well, what does that mean? What do I actually have to do? And I'll, a story that I'll tell is uh, I knew a company that was working in the mortgage space, 
and they were working with legacy providers that wouldn't wouldn't accept uh, it was, it was a, a PDF because they thought that a PDF could be, or no, it was an image. They thought that an image could be doctored, um, but a PDF couldn't be doctored. And, and of course that's not true. <laughs> and so uh, they, you know, tried to explain that it's not true, but the rules are the rules and there's not even a way to appeal that. And so what they had to do is spend months on converting images to PDFs in a way that made them look like scans because they would only accept a PDF that looked like it came from a scanner. And they actually ended up putting out like a patent and a white paper on how to do this. And it was, it's so far afield of what their company did, which was just automate the mortgage process. But you know, it's, it's because it's, once these laws are written or, and these rules are in place, it, they, there may have been a good reason at the time, but you know, it's, it's very hard to change them once they're, they're out there and they can really stifle innovation. That's crazy. That's so funny. I could just see like us at that meeting, figuring out how to make the image look like a scan and building that system and then just batch processing all of them. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly what they did. And, you know, it worked and, you know, the, all of their, all of their scans were accepted. So where are you spending like a lot of your time today? Because you started out, you were one of the, were you the first engineer or one of the first engineers? I was the first engineer. Yeah. In 2007 at the height of the peak. So like the responsibilities change a lot, right? You're very doing very different things today. Can you tell me about like how you're spending your time today? Quite different today. So today I, I've very much gone up the management track, not the, uh, not the technical road. And so I, I'm, over about geez, 800 something people. And I, I run our engineering security data and actually our core product organizations as well as um, functions like analytics. And so I'm, I'm much more of like an executive level manager than I am an engineer nowadays. Although I often like to say that they can draw on the same parts of the brain, you know, in, in the beginning, you're thinking a lot of systems and putting stuff together. And then in the middle of your progression and middle management, you're, you know, how do I work with people and learning people and, you know, the, the kind of direct interaction. And then when you take another step up, it's actually kind of back to the system side again, because now you're thinking like, okay, well, how does this system of people work with this system of people? And how do I structure incentives to make, you know, things work in the same way that I would create like an objective function for an algorithm? And I don't know, you know, I can't predict what the machine learning system will do, but if I set up the right incentives and the right parameters, you know, I'll have faith that that, you know, that will drive towards that outcome. And so it's funny, I think how, you know, how the beginning and the end are kind of similar in a way, but the middle was very different. I like how you gave that visualization of you can create the environment and direct the incentives to achieve the outcome. Cause it's funny. Cause as I'm thinking about it, as you're speaking, you can drive yourself mad, like exploring these architect types or you know, building these types of systems of people and people. But after you go through it enough, you realize that the only thing you can do is just align the incentive uh, the best possible way and then let it run and then watch it and then watch what happens and then make corrections as necessary. Something I got hung up on previously was just trying to predict what would happen with certainty. Uh, and then you mentioned like the concept of faith. You're right. You just have to align the incentives, have some faith, and then let some time pass. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And sort of your function as an executive leader then 
is you you kind of are the objective function in a way. You're, you're stewarding over the whole thing and making sure that the outcome is actually what you were intending it to be and manipulating the system such that, you know, it's going to, you know, keep driving in the way that you want. And what I think is interesting about organizations in this job is, you know, you might set up, you know, one optimization, and you're moving in one direction, and then you'll necessarily move away from something else. And so there's sort of a grooming that has to happen where you're kind of, you know, you go this way for a while, and then you have to change things to move this direction for a while so that you can take the center course overall, but there might be no easy way to actually structure the, the center course, you know, off the bat. So what type of lessons are you learning today? Like what's going on from a leadership perspective uh, that, that you're growing, like where, what area are you growing in today? So the, well, things like this, <laughs> so, uh, the, what's, what is very different about, you know, executive leadership is it's a lot of, there's a lot more public speaking, a lot more, you know, getting out in front of a lot of people. And so that part is very different than the systems part. It's almost, it's almost like politics more than it is like engineering, which is, you know, that's a, that's definitely a learning curve. So, you know, I'm always trying to, you know, improve and get better at that. And uh, that's, that's definitely something I'm learning. And then of course, right now we're, you know, we're working on uh, our, our acquisition with Intuit. And so we, we had announced that that was uh, in process earlier this year. And so just, you know, thinking through how to lead the company through change, you know, and, and making sure that I'm doing a good job there is, is something that I've been working on. So what is like, what do you tactically do? Is it just communication with your team about the process and reassurance, things like that? Yeah, I think in this kind of stage, a lot of it is communication and what type of communication and expectation setting and, you know, how are you actually going to structure the whole thing so that, you know, people can get confidence and, you know, what their future might be. Because when you have a, you know, we announced back in, you know, February or so, and it's, uh, it's November and we're not, you know, not quite closed yet. And so that's a period of uncertainty for everybody, you know, on the team. And so, you know, riding through uncertainty is, is tough, you know, people don't, people don't like that. And so, you know, how you communicate that and yourself trying to make sure that, you know, you're, you're kind of remaining steady and, you know, showing people what you feel inside, um, is, you know, is important. You ever like through this process, uh, these past 13 years, find yourself like stretched too thin? Oh man. So many times. What did you do? <laughs> like, what was the signal? What was the indicator and how did you learn to manage it? Uh, so I, yeah, the toughest part is probably the hyper hyper growth part. I would say, you know, from start to finish, if I were to pinpoint an area that was very difficult, it would be like that 20, 12 to 14 range when we were just hockey stick, you know, and you're doubling the company every year and the pace of hiring and the, and the technical challenges and just everything just hits you at once. And then all of the opportunity in the world. So at the exact same time where you're like, wow, I have all these structural things to do. You also need to be doubling down on the business. And so it's just sort of an insane time. Uh, and, you know, I always encourage people, if you have an opportunity to to join something in, in that stage of growth and you've never done it, it's it's worth it to see it. It's the messiest part, I think, of a company's history by far because it's crazy. But 
it's very interesting to see it, you know, to see it go. And so, yeah, that was definitely the time I was most stretched and how I, how I managed it was just one, just coming to terms with you just, you can't do everything. You know, there's just at that time, there's way too much stuff than any human can do. And so you really have to ruthlessly prioritize. And for me at that time, the number one priority was hiring. You know, it's just, that was what we had to do. Get the best people, prioritize even who I'm hiring. So which roles are the most critical to get in place and spend the most time on and onboarding, you know, is right alongside that because it's, you can't just get people in the building. You need to really invest time in getting them to understand how, what makes the company tick and, you know, how do you think and what, what has made the company so successful and where does it need to go? And there's just so much institutional knowledge you need to impart. And so just over-investing there and then knowing that, you know, some things aren't going to be is what I want them to be. Um, and, you know, accepting that I think is what, what keeps you sane. Is that when, during that hyper growth, is that when you decided with the executive team to create the core values? It's, that's an interesting question. We actually did have, I think we had values created prior to that, but they never really stuck. And I think it was because there probably wasn't the need, you know, because you would just absorb the values by being around the founders all the time. So you don't really need to write them down. But yeah, actually around 2014-ish, I would say is when we decided to create and really codify the core values for that reason. Yeah, we were trying to impart upon people, you know, what, who are we? You know, what are the things that we really, uh, we really believe in? Um, and empathy is actually one of ours. And I think one of the, the, the core values that we have, because there's this sort of intangible that was hard to explain, but just that people here are, are it's very nice. That's how I, that's how I tend to describe it to folks. It's just that it's a group of people that considers each other's feelings and you can feel it when you're in the building, but it was hard to actually codify that and write it down. And empathy was one of the, you know, best words that we could come up with that when people read it, they really got it, you know, what, you know, what we're trying to achieve. And so you, you were able to articulate this and then how did you scale it? I mean, you say you write it down, you communicate it, like, do you do training on it? How, how do you scale it throughout the company? Or is it just the early culture had it so embedded that as it grew, the people just, it was behavior that was just mimicked? Yeah, I think some of what happened there was it was so ingrained that it just sort of happened on the empathy side, but it does, it corrects for outliers. And when, you know, these outliers occur and you start to get these like cultural pockets that mismatch, you have something written down that says, hey, this, this is right and this is wrong, you know, because otherwise you can actually get these microcultures internally. And if those get big enough, there's nothing to say that that microculture isn't the right culture. And, you know, these other cultures aren't, aren't right because people don't have direct exposure to the, to me every day to, to know. And, you know, once that spins too far out of control, you actually have a pretty significant issue. <laughs> you can't, you know, it's very hard to change the culture of a whole group. Uh, you know, you have to change leadership and you have to do some, we've, we've done it and we've, it's, it's, it's not easy to do that. And so um, we, some of it was innate and then some of it, I think, yeah, we did a lot of things like we had, I think it's weekly awards, weekly culture awards, a lot of baking it into our all hands and 
uh, all of our internal communications and marketing did a really good job weaving it into internal branding. And it was just, you know, we tried to kind of have a full on, you know, blitz there where we, anywhere we could integrate it, we did. I'm taking notes. <laughs> I know we're recording this, but it's just, it's really good because you're giving me like really direct detailed answers. And so often I'll, I'll ask a question and I'll get, you know, like a parable type deal back or, uh, but you talking about how you integrate it into your weekly, like your all hands, your internal branding. So like it could be, you know, integrated like onboarding materials, right. Uh, through your award system that you were doing. Those are all very tactical ways that, you know, people who are having trouble getting their core values out, or maybe they've, their core values have changed to get to, like to distribute them. And I've talked to a couple other people too, that have mentioned that they've had to like take entire chunks of their organization, whether it's 50 people or hundred people and, and get rid of that chunk because of a bad culture issue. And it just like will infect the entire, like an, an entire section of the organization then they have to just get rid of it. And I was like, that is a fascinating thing to, to understand because I was trying to figure out like how, how do these culture issues become, how do they bubble up, right? Like how, how do they get up to you, up to the founders, up to the people who can uh, cut them off? That's tricky too. Actually, the reporting upward is very hard. So, you know, I've often heard people say like, geez, how did you all not know? And it's like, well, it's pretty easy to not know if no one will tell you, <laughs> you, know? you know, we are all just human at, at the end of this all. And if the, if the information is not flowing, if the data is held to this, you know, just this one spot, then there's no reason to expect that we would know. And so the, yeah, two things I think really happened there. One is I, I got a lot better kind of establishing these, these informational touch points to each org and making sure that I had a better flow of information to keep that stuff from, you know, from happening again. And, you know, one thing that we did there was just centralizing our program management organization, for example. So like our program management organization, I changed it to report directly to me and, and there, they, they work with everybody, you know, they work across the whole organization and it gave me a really good funnel for, you know, what's going well and what's not going well and where, you know, where are people not getting along so well and which groups don't work together so well. And why is that? Um, and establishing more of that was very helpful because the, you know, the quality of information is, you know, how is critical to how you make decisions. And then uh, once, once we figured out, you know, what, you know, what the problem was, then, then you have to decide, okay, how deep does it go and how dramatic, uh, you know, a change is, is really required. And so we've, we've had cultural issues where, you know, I've just sat down with a leader and said, this is an issue and you need to change it. And it's not, it's not a negotiable thing. You can't break a value. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter how good a job you're doing, but this has to change. And I've had well, actually quite a few of those conversations and, and most of the time people actually will make a you know pretty concerted effort to change, but sometimes not, you know, sometimes they just, they can't change or don't want to change or, you know, don't, don't actually align with the value. And then you just have to make that decision pretty quick to, to change it up. Cause usually the org will follow the leader and then you'll have some number of loyalists that align, you know, very direct with that leader. Maybe people they brought from a prior company, maybe managers who the leader hired sort of in their own image, 
And then those people typically will fall off very quickly after whether you, you know, you change it up or they just decide like, Hey, you know, this isn't going in a way that's gonna, you know, lead to career, career success for me. I'd be better off somewhere else. I noticed in your culture items, you list ownership, which is one of my favorite items. I love that book, extreme ownership. And ever since I read it, it just blew my mind. And, but what I've noticed though, like after reading that book and sort of like having the fog lifted, right. And having this new perspective is that most of the world, like in public and things, most of the world's designed to like tell you it's not your fault. Right. Um, and that you don't have ownership over it. And people want to like, even me, I notice like, sometimes I want to like protect whether it's like kids or whatever. Like, I feel like I need to protect sometimes and, and remove that uh, ownership from somebody. But so I was just curious because like for us, it's always hard. It's like, I would say it's one of the hardest culture items. And I, one of the reasons why I think it's hard is because we have that inside of our organization. Right. But then we go interact with the world and there it's, it's telling us an opposite thing. And then we come back to work and it's like, this is what it is. And so uh, do, you, do you experience that at all? I, I think everyone experiences that. Cause I think that's more normal for people to be, well, I'm a part of this big system and, you know, my job is to take widget and phase three of the process and turn it into phase four widget. And, you know, I'm not responsible for anything outside of that. And even my part is dependent on the machine that I use and this other person maintains the machine. And when the machine breaks, it's their fault. And, you know, that's, I think that's our default position, which, you know, it's on the surface doesn't sound like a crazy position, but, you know, I, I think, one of the things that you get a really good perspective on starting the company is just this, when you're making all these systems and creating all these rules, there's this idea of mutability. Like I, I just made all this stuff up. We can change it, you know? And often all it just takes is somebody who is like, Hey, I'm watching this process and I think it's broken and I have a really good idea and I'm actually going to chase it down or, and come up with a plan and then, you know, pitch it or propose it or just do it. And that's, that's actually how a lot of stuff gets done. You know, I think people sort of expect that somebody on high, some VP is going to, you know, have a light bulb moment and, you know, change everything, but their information flow is, you know, as imperfect as ours or anybody's. And, you know, often what it takes is somebody who's just like, Hey, I'm going to own this thing. I'm going to be the person I'm going to do this. And we are trying to convey that, you know, that attitude of, you know, sort of anyone can take anything and, you know, change anything. And you can, you can be in charge of your own destiny and be accountable for, you know, what happens there, good and bad. And we initially had, uh, I think it was like be entrepreneurial or something like that in, uh, in our values, but it was, it didn't translate well to that concept actually is what we discovered. It, it was, it, it wasn't like a perfect description. And when we, when we did ownership, it actually, it worked a lot better. You know, people started to actually pick up things and say like, okay, I will own this. I'll be the person. And, that just even kind of being able to say that and people know what it means, I think was, was helpful. Yeah. Otherwise you get like department heads with their own PLs charging back for their services to other teams because <laughs> they're trying to be entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of really goofy, the entrepreneurial one was, was, was kind of goofy. And then there, it, it, it implies all of these things, you know, people wanted to be entrepreneurial, but also, you know, 
and sometimes they would interpret that as like, oh, well, I should just break all process to get my thing done. Because entrepreneurs, you know, I'm, I'm watching Travis at Uber and he's just kicking down doors <laughs> to get his thing done. And we're like, that's not what we intended. Uh, so ownership worked a little better because when you want to get something done, it's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be accountable for the whole thing. You know, not just like this outcome, but, you know, making people around me not miserable <laughs> in the process. Yeah, that's how like the ownership ties with empathy, ties with helpfulness. I really liked those. At least those are the notes that I have like from the top three core values. Yeah, and a lot of them are centered around just this idea of, you know, take something, you know, can, can we empower people to take things and run with them? And, you know, and, and inherent in those values is that, that helpfulness part is that if you see someone else doing that, help them out. You know, don't just kind of leave them out on a limb if they're like, hey, I really want to change this. And, you know, I just need you to make your widgets a little bit differently. We wanted a culture where people where people would be like, oh, yeah, that sounds, you know, let's try it. I'll, I'll help you out. Um, not a culture where it felt like every time you wanted to change something, like you're, you were supported top down, but everyone else is sort of like, you know, ah, I, you know, that's not really my problem. Um, that's your problem. Uh, and that pairing, I think, really helped out. When you, when you were starting this, like, or it looks like right after you started it, there was the 2008 financial crisis. And then we just recently had this whole deal with, with COVID in 2020. Did any of the lessons you learned, like being at a startup, being at a company, going through the financial crisis, translate or help prepare you for what happened with COVID? Uh, very, very much. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were very prepared. When you live through one earthquake, you're very prepared for the next earthquake. <laughs> so, you know, because there, there tends to be this normalcy bias, like ah, earthquakes. You know, I've, they happen, but you know what? It won't happen to me. <laughs> so, if you're born in you know 2000, you know 2014, you're probably thinking like, ah, I'm going to be fine. Whatever. I'm not worried about the downturn. If you live through one. Yeah, and 2008 was a bad one, in, and especially in our business. I mean, we make money when we can connect people with better loans, and banks are going under in 2008. I mean, it is a catastrophic moment for you know your business. We we back then we tried to raise money around that time because we needed it. We we started in 2007 at the peak, and then it, it all went down in 2008, 2009. And we were planning to raise our Series A around then, and we pitched forty something investors, and not a single one would give us money at that time. And so, you know, we we had to learn some things, like one, just basic discipline around the business and marketing. And we got really good about not spending money unless we knew we were gonna, you know, get a return on that investment. And we we tightened our belts a lot and became really super efficient. And a lot of that discipline held, you know, when we, when we were going into this financial crisis, you know, we really, you know, we have a lot of the same leadership and they knew what to do and we knew how the banks and others would react. So we were prepared and we've, we've always had a plan, you know, we've always known like, Hey, you know, things ebb and flow, there's going to be another recession. There's going to be, you know, these events and we want to create a company that can weather them. So we had worked on a lot of things, you know, coming up with businesses that were counter cyclical. So that, you know, like insurance that will do well, even when, you know, even when there's a downturn or actually even better. Uh, and we had done a lot of things to kind of prepare and we had saved money. You know, that's the other thing you tell individual, 
members on our site, you know, save money for the rainy day. You know, businesses should do that too. You don't, you don't want to be the airline that needs the bailout. <laughs> you know, that's, we, we thought, you know, we want to, we don't want to leave our, our fate in the hands of others. We're going to have, we're going to have the money to weather, you know, whatever comes up. And so that having that freedom was, was great. Yeah. Savings is incredibly important. That feeling I've been in both positions. I've been in the position where I'm dependent upon convincing the VC firm to give us more money because we won't make payroll. And I've been in the position where we have savings for multiple months so we can weather a bad month or two here and there. Um, and then that, that the ability to have that cushion and be independent and own your own outcome uh, the state of mind you can be in, you don't have to be stressed, right? You can think calmly and make better long-term decisions. It does. The long-term is what I was going to mention. It really helps you invest in the long-term. You know, if if you're paycheck to paycheck, you have a very hard time saving for retirement, right? You, you, the more you can get into a position where you have a substantial cushion, the more you can be thinking about optimizing, you know, for the long-term. Yeah, one of our company items, culture items, is uh, we think in terms of decades because I want when we're making decisions, let's think how is this going to affect us in ten years. That's great. Yeah, I, and I'm constantly. I was just talking to some people about actually planning for the long term yesterday. It's one of those things you have to continually push people to do because you know the average role in the Bay Area lasts a couple years, two to three years. And, and people want to succeed in that time and then move on to their next thing or be promoted. And, you know, how do you do that? You do that usually by driving metrics that will, you know, reflect short term. And then whatever you did that plays out in the long term is somebody else's problem because you're going to be gone. And so it's, you know, the, the incentive scheme for people to work on the long term isn't necessarily there by default. And so it's something that you actually have to manage for because it's hard to, it's hard to measure like whether or not the thing that you're doing today is going to result in a good outcome in four years. Um, and I was just describing yesterday to the team that, you know, our, our process is actually, you know, usually what we do is like first have a vision for the long term. So if you don't have that start there, and that's usually something I push all of my direct reports on like, Hey, where are you going? you know, let's forget about effort, forget about like how much time can I spend or not? Just where do you even want to be? Let's get very clear on that. And what would we do? And then from there, once we actually know what that is, then we look at the kind of like, what are we doing quarter by quarter and how much effort can we spend towards that long-term? And usually I'll require that people are spending some significant percentage, you know, like 30% pushing towards their long-term vision. And the better you, you know, you're doing in the short term, you know, the easier it is and the more you can, the more you can dedicate to those long-term initiatives. Again, it's like the paycheck to paycheck thing. If you're struggling to make your numbers at all, then it's really hard. And we've normally been able to achieve that, you know, and I found that most groups that say like, well, well, we just don't have the resourcing, you know, we don't have the, I'm usually like, well, you know, if I look at your roadmap, you could probably cut the bottom 30% and still have the exact same outcome because it's the top few initiatives that will drive most of what you're trying to do. And, you know, where you actually draw that line on your priority chart past a certain point, you know, it may seem if you're very in the weeds, like it matters a lot, but it probably doesn't matter more than 
where what you'll be glad to have built in three years. So with your direct reports and you pushing them to have these like long-term goals and vision. So he'll work with them to connect how, how those long, how their long-term goals connect with the company's long-term goals. So like, you'll make sure that that matches and then you'll hold them accountable to these like on a quarterly basis. Like how do you do it? Yeah. So normally, so our executive team will meet, you know, annually and talk about, you know, what's our, you know, kind of refresh our strategy and make sure that, you know, we're, you know, we're all aligned in, in terms of where the, you know, where long-term is. And then my individual teams will meet quarterly and talk through, you know, their quarterly stuff. And then often around the time of the annual refresh that the executive team does, I'll, I'll be checking in with teams on their, on their long-term vision. What's happened more and more recently is that, you know, as we've gotten into a good cadence of the, you know, kind of the having the long-term vision in place, it's much more like we're just refining that as we go rather than having to reboot it. Uh, the, a team that came over to me in, um, you know, just the past, I guess it's like 18 months or so is our product team. And before that, I hadn't really run a lot of products. Uh, directly, but our core product team, basically the app that you use every day, that's like essentially what they, what they do. And, you know, the first thing I did was say like, okay, where is this going? You know, cause I don't understand at the time, I didn't really understand like what, why did we land on this navigation scheme? What are we, you know, what are we driving towards? And, you know, what, what do we want the member to, to be thinking you know, every day when they interact with their site and how does that connect to our long-term goals? And they just didn't really have that codified. Um, and they're kind of just flying through each year based on what they kind of heard the priority for the year was. And so we spent about six months just going through, you know, okay, well, if we could just wipe the slate clean and think, you know, well, we know that the company long-term is moving towards automation and we know that we're, we have all of these product initiatives that are going to push us in that way. How should the product that you open every day reflect that? And, you know, after about six months of all kinds of back and forth and ideas and um, brainstorming and concept cars and, and so on, we actually landed on, you know, something that we really thought was aligned with where the company wanted to go. And we executed a pretty big redesign this year, actually. So the app that you would, open today is very different than the app that you would have seen just a year ago. And it really reflects where we wanted to go. You know, we brought all of our money features, you know, assets and checking forward and made them, you know, first class citizens in the application and created an app that was much more around member jobs and what, what is the member trying to accomplish and not so much, you know, what our organizational structure was. And that was all a result of us, you know, getting to a place where we were aligned on, you know, where we want to be. Do you guys have sales teams? We in it sort of a different way, probably than a, than maybe some other companies you talk to. Our sales teams are more like business development that work with banks and credit unions and loan providers. Because essentially, what happens is, you know, if you're I don't know Chase Bank, you want to sell mortgages and personal loans and credit cards and what have you, and so we're we're talking to them about hosting their products on our site so that, you know, our, to add them to our portfolio of member choices. Um, but it's not, it's not sales and kind of like the classic, you know, way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It kind of reminds me of like, a, I worked at a company that a, a while back and 
they negotiated deals and with larger other like entities, but it sounds like what you were talking about, right? It's not like we're sitting there calling B2Bs, right? Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's not like that. This is it's very different, very different from that. And a lot of specs are more like a, like a two-sided marketplace and, and, and how the business model actually operates. So the sales team's job is they're filling like that side of the marketplace. And then the app gets like the consumers and the credit scores get the consumers and that fills that side of the marketplace. And then you guys pair them up. I like, first of all, I'm a huge fan because I've been using the app for, I don't know, five or six years, but it's really been great because I, I really liked when it could figure out how much interest I was paying on a car loan and then integrate with this other company that could let me refinance the car like and get 2% better interest on it. And then it shows you the savings like, oh, you'd save like, you know, $3,000 over the lifetime of this loan by just clicking here. And then I went through the process and it was like this very simple, the, the, like the partner that you had brought in for that, I can't remember who it was, but they had a really advanced system and interface for like qualifying you. So I didn't have to do it. I filled out a form, it took me like five minutes and then they gave me an offer to like refinance one of my cars. And I said, this was quite honestly the coolest financing experience I've ever had. That's great. Yeah, I'm so glad you had that experience because that's exactly what we're driving toward. And so we have uh, these systems, Easy Apply and Lightbox. And essentially what they do is they, one, make, uh, we, we can't see the underwriting for the partner, but our system knows what you will and won't be approved for. So, um, you know, I can't like actually look at it, but um, it exists on a system known to our system and it's able to figure out, you know, hey, this is everything that Joel could be approved for. And then with the easy apply system, we're actually able to just streamline that whole application process. And, you know, our end goal there is where you once had to go, that exact experience, you would have had to go provider by provider and individually apply and give all of them all of your information. On our system, no information needs to be transferred at all until you actually decide to take this loan and then it's seamless. And so it's just, it's so much better in every respect. You know, you have like a full marketplace there with con actual consumer choice. It, the consumer experience is, is much better and you don't have nearly the same kind of data sharing that you had in the, in the old model. It's, it's, there's an anonymous, you know, interaction with each one of these until you've actually chosen to work with somebody. Yeah, it's very helpful. It's very cool. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I love it. And I hope that it continues to grow and, and that you guys continue to achieve your goal of making, you know, what was it? What was it? I want to state it correctly. What's the actual company goal? Yeah, we want to make financial progress possible for everybody. And so the, you know, our idea there is that just, it's been a very, it's been a very unfair system for a lot of people and very difficult. Uh, and discouraging and you know it doesn't have to be that way you know with with technology and and a company that wants to make things better it's possible yeah it's crazy i really appreciate you taking time and coming on and hanging out and like sharing all your good insight and everything i really appreciate it ryan yeah thanks well i had a really good time this was a lot of fun i appreciate you having me on Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io.
Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.